daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, China's foreign minister has held talks with his Russian counterpart in Moscow. India expels a Canadian diplomat in tit-for-tat move as a row over assassinated Sikh activist in Western Canada deepens. U.S. auto workers are threatening to expand Detroit strikes. And we are going to take a look at a radiation concern surrounding iPhone 12 in Europe. If you want to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has held talks with his Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov in Moscow. Wang Yi opened this meeting by hailing the strategic cooperation between the two countries, as well as a shared commitment to a multipolar world. The Chinese diplomat said China and Russia bear special responsibility for maintaining global strategic stability and global development. China and Russia are holding the 18th round of China-Russia strategic security consultation this week in Moscow. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Cui Hongjian, head of the European Studies Department with the China Institute of International Studies. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So Mr. Wang Yi uh, has reiterated in this meeting that uh, the the uh, the China-Russia cooperation is not directed against anyone and is not influenced by any other countries. Uh, this is, of course, China's way of viewing this relationship with Russia. Uh, do you think it is um, in line with the actual situation between the two countries? Yes, the description by uh, Mr. Wang about the spectral uh, of the the feature of the uh, relationship between China and Russia, I think is right to the value of this uh, relationship. As we know, as uh, two uh, uh, big country and also now the two major players in the world, uh, I think this uh, coordination between China and Russia uh, exactly will contribute more to this uh, strategic uh, stability uh, on a global level. Uh, certainly, once uh, China and Russia uh, they try to have uh, make a block in military or in politics or in some other. Certainly, they'll give some uh, damage to this uh, strategic uh, balance uh, in the world. As we know, uh, even in the practice, I think uh, not only in China and Russia, they uh, speak out something and also they do the same thing. For example, uh, as we know that uh, uh, always, the uh, American side uh, try to find uh, some uh, uh, evidence that uh, China is supporting the military uh, to uh, Russia. But mm-hmm. uh, so far, no any I mean, evidence for that. So I think that uh, uh, not only uh, in policy, in declaration, and also in practice, China and Russia they try to find out the new type of relations uh, between major players. Hmm. So why do China and Russia bear special responsibility in terms of maintaining global strategic stability and, and global development? Some Chinese diplomats um, say that uh, Russia-China cooperation adds more certainty to the world today. However, on the other hand, some people say China and Russia, some people in the West say China and Russia are forming a kind of um, anti-West uh, coalition or alliance that tries to overthrow the existing international order. What is your take on this? Always, uh, especially from uh, Western media opinion, there are some uh, bias uh, towards the relations between China and Russia. Uh, also, you know that uh, China and Russia now they try to find out some uh, consensus to uh, you know oppose the. Uh, hegemony and also the unilateral behaviors, especially about some countries. But I don't think that uh, it means that uh, China will have, uh, you know, a, a, a total opposing uh, attitude towards any kind of uh, uh, international order. You also know, yes, now the Western countries, 
they are taking use of their uh, international law and the rules to do something bad. But I don't think that the China uh, uh, try to uh, have some uh, you know up and down uh, attitude toward this uh, water. Always, China and Russia will try to reform the current uh, international order, especially to uh, uh, you know uh, to uh, ha- find out some new uh, 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 you know institutions and uh, some new rules to support, for example, the globalization and some other uh, I mean positive uh, change of the international order. Mm, and also the trade dynamics between the two. Uh, powers is also pretty strong, and it has been growing. Now, in principle, Doctor Tsui, we understand security consultation between Moscow and Beijing is an, a sort of an annual dialogue mechanism between the two sides. Uh, it has been in place since the year two thousand and five. So,、uh, what do you think are the prioritized issues for the two sides to discuss、um, this time? I think、uh, for both countries,、uh, the major issues for this、uh, consultation would be,、uh, you know, the three levels. Firstly, on the、uh, bilateral level,、uh, undoubtedly,、uh, both countries will try to promote their bilateral relations in all of the areas. And also on the、uh, regional level, as we know, recently China and Russia they try to,、uh, you know, build up uh, uh, more. Uh, uh, Beyond uh, uh, cooperation with the、uh, surrounding countries, not only in the frame of、uh, SAO and also in the、uh, bilateral relations with every, I mean, uh, uh, neighboring countries. But of course, as we know recently, the United States tried to have some more influence in Central Asia. There will be a say five plus one、uh, a conference between the、uh, United States and some other Central Asia countries. So I think China and Russia should have some more concern about any kind of,、uh, you know, policy or any kind of,、uh, you know, behaviors from the United States in the region.、Mm-hmm. But of course, on the global level, the uh, uh, Ukraine crisis and uh, also uh, uh, Korea Peninsula issue and some other security issue would be、uh, in the context of the discussion. Hmm. So, Mr. Wang Yi's、uh, trip to Moscow this time is taking place not only a few days after he met with U.S. President Joe Biden's、uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in Malta, but also a day after North Korean leader Kim Jong Un finished his、uh, high-profile six-day trip to Russia. What do you make of the timing of Wang Yi's trip? We are talking about the huge change in the international order and the international situations. I think now China should have a lot of、uh, ambition to be part of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the、uh, bigger players、uh, gaming, especially uh, by uh, uh, diplomacy. So we can find out the China always try to、uh, support any kind of effort、uh, towards the uh, international uh, strategic uh, uh, stability. So China tried to、uh, stabilize its relations with the United States, and also at the same time, China also tried to promote its relations with Russia and some other neighboring countries. But of course, as we know now, not only because of the Ukrainian crisis and also because of、uh, some unilateral behaviors uh, from the、uh, United States and some other Western countries, I think it's very necessary for China to have some more diplomatic efforts to.、Uh, You know, get some more balanced relations with all of the、uh, party. I think it will、uh, contribute to you know, not only regional and also on global level to support the strategic balance.、Mm. So actually, on this、uh, Tuesday,、uh, G7 foreign ministers on the sidelines of the ongoing UN General Assembly meeting in New York,、uh, these ministers from G7 made a collective call on China. Uh, to put more pressure on Russia regarding the regarding the、uh, the Ukraine war, how would you look at this, Doctor Tsui? And by the way, do you think it is、um, it is fair to China that uh, whenever uh, a senior Chinese official or a senior Chinese diplomat、uh, visits Moscow and a meeting with、uh, Russian officials? 
uh, this kind of、uh, trip is、uh, more often than not seen by some people in the West as China showing support or at least sympathy to Russia regarding the Ukraine war. First of all, I think、uh, to impose some pressure because China, especially, try to、uh, find out some more、uh, difference and also some.、Uh, Divergences between Russia and China is always,、uh, I mean, a、uh, continuing, uh, uh, you know, tour or you know, waiting from、uh, G7, because as we know,、uh, they think that、uh, once there are some more、uh, divergences between China and Russia, certainly、uh, it will be useful for、uh, Western bloc、uh, to deal with China, Russia,、uh, you know, separately. It will be more uh, uh, advantage for them. But of course, I think that uh, uh, it's a kind of uh, uh, misunderstanding of this、uh, nature of the China-Russia relations, as we mentioned before, and also to in, to keep some、uh, pressure on China and also on Russia. To some degree, it's in the、uh, line with the so-called strategic interests of some、uh, Western countries. So I don't think that、uh, any kind of、uh, Uh, traditional and、uh, normal exchange between China and Russia、uh, is a signal that China is supporting、uh, Russia for everything.、Uh, even on the、uh, Ukrainian crisis, we can find that China always try to find its own stance. And China,、uh, I think, the value between China and the, in the relations between China and Russia is China will do everything、uh, what he think、uh, right. And also at the same time, China will respect, to some degree, the rights of Russia to do something. So I think it's out of the、uh, experience of some、uh, Western countries. So it's not、uh, so strange. Always they have something bad to say. Hmm. Thank you very much for putting this into perspective. That was Dr. Cui Hongjian, head of the European Studies Department with the China Institute of International Studies. Thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the World Today. In my opinion, the World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In the World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. India and Canada are now engulfed in a diplomatic row, with both New Delhi and Ottawa expelling senior diplomats. The tit-for-tat expulsion came after Canada said on Monday this week that it was investigating "quote-unquote" credible allegations linking India to the June killing of the Canadian citizen and a prominent Sikh leader, Hardeep Singh Nijjar. Canada is home to one of the biggest Sikh communities outside of India. Nijjar, this、uh, assassinated person, was an outspoken supporter of the creation of a separate Sikh homeland called Khalistan. The Khalistan movement is considered as a national security threat by the Indian government. A number of groups associated with the movement are listed as terrorist organizations under a law in India. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Rongying, Vice President and a Senior Research Fellow with the China Institute of International Studies. Dr. Rong is a India expert.、Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So first of all, on the part of、uh, the Canadian government, why do you think Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has openly criticized? Or has openly accused India of possibly being behind this assassination of this person. I mean, is that due to the pressure from this、um, very large-scale Sikh community in Canada, or due to some other reasons? Well, I think the pressure from the、uh, Sikh community in Canada certainly is、uh, one of the factor factors that uh, uh, caused this uh, diplomatic. Uh, Problem. I mean, uh, uh, between uh, Canada and uh, India, 
But I think it's, it's right. I think uh, the question is why they, they do it in a public way. My answer, my speculation is that they are not able to solve these issues or manage it in a private way. Remember the press report. And also, I think uh, uh, Trudeau, Prime Minister himself, when he spoke at the parliament, that he tried, the Canadian tried to talk with uh, the Indian government about the issues in private. It seems that it is not being able to address or find a way out. And more importantly for me, I think we can definitely, I think, reach a conclusion that the evidence or the intelligence uh, I think the Canadians have got has made them impossible to address this issue in private way. Mm. Uh, and that, that is, I think, the, the, the background of this uh, diplomatic uh, sort of role between uh, in, in between Canada and India. Mm. So, on the part of uh, India, why does New Delhi claim that it is uh, increasingly concerned about the perceived interference of Canadian diplomats in India's internal affairs and their involvement in anti-India activities? Do you think New Delhi have a point here? Yeah, I would like to do it. I mean, answer question in two in two ways. One is as a developing country, I think India has always been uh, subject to fair and unfair criticism by the uh, Western countries, and uh, uh, Canadian seems that for some reason uh, has been one of the uh, countries that have been making the loudest uh, noise or being very critical on that. And uh, the most recent one, uh, I think, before this problem is that I think the, 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 the Trudeau uh, administration has also criticized uh, New Delhi's uh, treatment or way of treating its farmers. So uh, uh, the, this is, I think, the background. And, of course, India has always said no and has very much, I think, uh, resistant and sensitive to the criticism by the Western uh, country internal, uh, I mean, interfering internal affairs. But on this particular issue, I think Canadian has been at the front runner, uh, uh, as being on the front runner in criticizing uh, 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 India on this issue. For India, the issue, the Khalistan movement touched upon the national unity and the sovereignty. Of, uh, of India as a sovereign state. It also related to security issues I, because India government has already uh, did, did not, I mean, designated the, the, some of the elements, personalities as terrorists. And if you look at the, the question itself, per se, separatist uh, uh, movements, in particular, the uh, related uh, 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 the Sikh community has been very much uh, sensitive and haven't been caused a devastating uh, problem for India. If you look at the history, I think the former Prime Minister uh, Indira Gandhi was was assassinated because of uh, the uh, these uh, movements. And also, I think uh, the Indian uh, civil civilian uh, an airplane was also being uh, uh, sort of uh, bombed mm. yeah. uh, because of this that. So this is a very much, I think, uh, political issue, but also have very much, I think, bearing or background with India I mean, in terms of sovereignty, in terms of security, in terms of its efforts to sort of maintain its uh, territorial integrity, sovereignty, and national mm. uh, sort of unity. Yeah. So ties between India and Canada are actually not so often under limelight in media. Um, So based on what you have elaborated earlier, uh, if we put aside this latest drama, diplomatic drama between the two countries, um, can we say that the overall picture in this bilateral relationship uh, has not been very well, has, has always not been so well? I think it's fair to say that at, at the general level, both sides, uh, India and Canada, wanted to have a stable, uh, predictable relationship 
Unfortunately, I think their bilateral relationship, their interaction, engagement has always been sort of uh, disturbed or, uh, or undermined or disrupted even by incidents, I mean, issues like that. This is partly because of this large uh, Sikh community uh, and in Canada, and also I think the influence, the political influence of these uh, communities uh, on the domestic politics in Canada. So I think, uh, uh, and, and that these issues has now has, un- has caused problems not only to political and diplomatic problems, but also, I think, to trade economy issues. As we know that the trade talks between India and Canada mm. after six rounds has been now suspended. And it may, I think, this, this problem, this role may, I, I guess, in a, in a certain period of time, may continue to disturb or, or even disrupt the overall, I mean, trend uh, or, or momentum of the relationship becomes a really headache mm. for, for the two countries. Yeah, so if we take a look at a bigger picture, I mean, in recent years, you know better than I do, Dr. Rong, there has been a trend that uh, the West, in the case of the United States, in the case of the EU or the case of the UK, for example, they are all, you know, geopolitically and economically seeking closer partnership and alignment with India. However, in this latest uh, diplomatic tussle between Canada and India, we have seen countries like the U.S. and Australia respectively express their concerns about uh, Canada's allegation against uh, India. In other words, they are standing with Canada on this particular issue. So do you think this case tells us uh, anything about whether or not there is a limit in terms of how close India and those Western countries can get to each other? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It is true. I think the current episode or incident does uh, indicate raise the question uh, wh- whether there's a limit or what are the constraining factors that may limit the, uh, uh, the, tra- the trajectory and the, the prospect of India's relationship with the West in general and the United States, UK, Canada, and, and Australia, where I think specifically the six uh, communities have a quite a large size. And which means that they may continue to exert influence politically, causing problems between India's efforts with the West. And this related to that is, of course, the bigger question that is, say, what would it be a country like India, who is now very much, I think, uh, uh, keen on uh, pursuing a, a, a road of development, being a great, a bigger player in regional and international issues, but in the meantime, facing problems at home in terms of consolidating national unity, pursuing a development in life, and more importantly, how to ensure, I think, a a harmonious sort of coexistence between different societies, I mean, communities. In the case of India, that is the communities based on religion, based on ethnic group, which are always being a problem, sensitive problem, political problem. And that also raises another important question. India being the victim of Western uh, colonialism, and also, I mean, Western interference in internal affairs, what policy and what attitude India should take in terms of of, uh, other countries' uh, concerns? I think this is something India really has to be keeping in mind when they engage, manage the pressure from the West. In the meantime, it has to really think about, show respect, and do as it has been uh, done. And for that, I think a relationship with other countries, mm. labor in particular, can be stable and healthy. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Dr. Rongying, Vice President and a Senior Fellow with the, Chinese, with the China Institute of International Studies. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back after a short break.
Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. United Auto Workers' strike against America's biggest three automakers is underway. Negotiators said that there were reasonably productive discussions over the past weekend, but any agreement is nowhere in sight. CGTN's Hendrik Sybrandy reports. In Detroit this past weekend, members of the United Auto Workers Union had a loud and clear message for their bosses. It was echoed by a prominent U.S. politician. It is time for you to end your greed. It is time for you to treat your employees with the respect and dignity they deserve. Time, they all said, to sit down and negotiate a fair contract. Existing deals for 146,000 workers at Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis car assembly plants expired last Thursday. With no new contracts, nearly 13,000 of them at three factories were ordered onto the picket lines in a targeted action. These three units are being called to stand up. And walk out on strike at midnight tonight. The union is demanding a 36 percent pay increase over four years, roughly double what the companies are offering. No deal. No deal. Members are also calling for the end of wage tiers and better pension plans for new hires. Pretty reasonable, says President Biden. Auto companies have、uh, seen record profits, including the last few years, because of the extraordinary skill. And sacrifices the UAW workers. Those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view, with those workers. Back in 2007, they gave up cost of living raises and made pension concessions to help car makers survive the Great Recession. Now they say it's time for payback for companies to share some of their big profits. Some argue the COVID-19 pandemic also upset the status quo and convinced many workers they were being taken advantage of. And when you are in the midst of a crisis, where a lot of things that you took for granted have become unraveled, you also recognize that this is an opportunity to make changes to move yourself forward. A recent deal between Teamsters and UPS may also have sent a signal to the UAW that strikes pay off. I think these workers feel that they now have as much bargaining power as they're ever going to have, and so that's why. This strike is happening now. Companies say union proposals are far too expensive, would make car makers less competitive with their non-union rivals, and that their hands can't be tied as they invest for an electric vehicle future. Workers say they're holding firm. Now it's time. We need a contract. We need one that take, takes care of the new hires. Well, I'm hoping it don't go too long. But if it do, we just gonna stand out here and fight.、Yeah! It's a battle, one analyst says, that each side thinks is essential to their future. Can they find a middle ground somewhere down the road? Hendrik Sabrandi, CGTN, Detroit. Now, for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Professor Zhang Gong from the University of International Business and Economics. So, Professor Gong, I'm curious about how you see this strike. Is it different from the previous ones, and、uh, why did it happen? How has it made to today?、Um, I think、um, this has a lot to do with,、um, you know, for some time、uh, the auto workers haven't been seeing pay raises for quite some time,、um, and the United States is still facing a fairly high、uh, inflationary pressure. Um, so、um, you know, I think this strike is is probably best、uh, summarized by the phrase from President、uh, Joe Biden. He said, "Record profit, record contract." Right. <laughs> so the automakers have a record profit for the last three years.、Um, the unions,、uh, UAW,、uh, wants a record contract. I think that's what it's all about.
And it is also different in the sense that the issue relating to electrification are new to the industry. When we talk about electrification, it's obviously talk about the EV, the vehicles which are really going to be the future, not only in the United States but also elsewhere. So, how is that affecting the union workers? Yeah, this is actually a very good question. And at the surface, you know, I think the issue is about you know the forty percent pay raise the union is looking for.、Um, but behind this. Beneath this,、uh, there's also a very profound concern about、um, the implications of、uh, the entire automobile industry moving towards the electrification uh, direction, uh, and it does have an impact on the unions.、Um, I think the, the 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 bottom line issue here is that、uh, in the electric car era,、uh, more jobs are going to be created in batteries. Uh, as opposed to be uh, in the uh, automobile assembly plants,、uh, so in other words, the value added uh, in the uh, in the value chain of the automobile industry is shifting towards the battery as opposed to the uh, uh, the car assembly itself.、Um, now the problem is that in, in battery factories, typically、um, the workers are not unionized.、Um, my understanding is that most of the battery factories are. In southern states, states like、um, South Carolina, Georgia,、um, I think there's also one in Tennessee.、Uh, you know, where, where these states、um, usually、uh, actually outlaw、uh, unionization, so、uh, um, so so they don't have unions in these factories. So I think you know this is what the、uh, UAW is fighting for. I mean, there's a profound concern about、uh, jobs shifting to factories that are not unionized. Um, and that's going to have an impact on the union workers. So, what do you make of the development of the EV industry in the U.S.? How are the America's big three automakers' competitiveness in the EV sector? Because you mentioned the electric car era. So, what challenges are they facing?、Um, well, the auto, the three, the big three auto companies fully understand,、um, you know, the severity of this issue that the entire industry is, toward, is moving towards that direction. Um, but I think、um, you know they're relatively moving slowly.、Uh, even though I think they're still moving ahead of the Europeans,、um, the you know United States still has a, a very good a leading、uh, electric car company. That's Tesla, as we all know it.、Mm-hmm. Um, and and Tesla is is is, is really、uh, taking lion shares away from three automakers.、Um, but but I, I need to point out that you know the the biggest segment of the U.S. automobile industry, automobile market. Is actually the pickup market.、Um, you know, Ford used to be、uh, proud to be a、uh, pickup company, and by the way, they also manufacture some sedans. <laughs> that's that's what they usually call.、Uh, some of the you know big SUVs are essentially SUVs. I mean, they're building on the the same uh, 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 chassis, uh, you know, same technology as the SUVs. So these are you know, fairly heavy cars,、um, and、um, and they're gas guzzlers.、Mm. So、uh, you know. So when it comes to、uh, transforming these vehicles into electric cars, you know, it's a big challenge because you need more batteries. Batteries are heavy,、um, and、uh, you know we we know that the the、uh, the electric car movement starting out from sort of less、uh, heavy cars in the passenger car market.、Um, so so you know I think the automobile、uh, makers in the United States are a little bit saved by this phenomenon. I mean, the pro- the primary market is the.、Uh, The pickup market, you know, the electrification of the that market segment is getting slow,、uh, so they they can buy some time. But ultimately, I think、um, you know, they, they, everything has to be electrified.、Um, the Ford Motor Company I know is indeed building、uh, pickup trucks uh, uh, based on the electric platform. I mean, they're building battery factories, they're building、um, uh, you know, assembly lines for electric pickups.、Um, incidentally, you know, there's also an issue about.、Uh, Uh, you know, Chinese battery companies coming、uh, going to the United States. You know, the Congress is very angry about this.、Um, you know, Ford is actually has a、uh, joint venture agreement with the largest、uh, battery company in the world, which is a Chinese company, CATL.、Um, so this is still hanging up.、Um, but in any case,、um, you know, the、uh, the summary of the, this question, in my view, is that.、Uh, The electrification、uh, movement in the United States、uh, is a little bit slower than、mm. China, of course,、uh, but it still has some time because it's 
happening in a, it's mostly happening in a, in a market segment that it's more difficult to be electrified. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the big three automakers in the United States, you have to think about the potential economic impact because they have been such a key linchpin, right? Yeah. So the you know the auto sector is, is a huge sector in the U.S. economy. It employs a lot of people. You know, it's a very large GDP component. Um, so the United States cannot afford to see this industry gone. Uh, gone to foreign competition. You know, this happened in the 1980s, right? When Japanese companies started to uh, come to the United States, taking you know market shares away from U.S. automakers. I mean, the U.S. government actually took actions, right? <laughs> they, uh, it, you know, it took policies that to uh, essentially to uh, hamper the growth of the, uh, the imports from Japan. Um, and 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 there was actually also um, you know sort of uh, societal pushback against uh, Japanese uh, uh, auto manufacturers. So uh, you know this is more than an economics issue in my view. When it comes to auto industry, it's also a political issue as well mm. uh, because it involves so many people. Um, it involves so many companies. Uh, it has a very deep, a very chain. Um, and so the impact is very large. So I, I don't, I don't think that the United States government is going to sit back and see this industry um, uh, go down the drain uh, because of foreign competition. That's why I think, uh, you know, the U.S. government is actually making things very difficult for Chinese exports of uh, electric cars to the U.S. market. Um, I don't see much of a hope of that happening at all, actually, because in, in the end, it's a political issue here. Um, so, um, um, you know, the market is a little bit isolated in my view, or insulated in my view. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the three automakers uh, will still be doing okay, even though they are moving quite slowly in my view. Mm, so how far apart do you believe the workers and management are at this moment? Um, the, the, the negotiation is not coming too close at all. I mean, there's a, a still a very large gap. Um, the, um, the union is asking for a 40% pay raise. Uh, the management side says there's no way we can do that. Um, uh, so, so it looks like the you know the strike is going to go on for some time, maybe a few more days. Uh, but, but I think um, you know the the U.S. economy uh, and also the United States political uh, environment right now can afford a prolonged strike. It's going to have a economic impact. And I've seen numbers something like you know five six billion dollars uh, if it lasts more than two weeks. Um, you know, right now, uh, my understanding is that Chrysler has a still very large uh, inventory, uh, so it can hold on to the strike for some time. And the GM and and and, and the Ford, you know, their inventory level is actually pretty low right now, uh, so they can't afford this thing to be prolonged. And I think President Joe Biden cannot afford to see this thing prolonged. So I think um, you know, typically uh, in this kind of situation, the strike is going to go on. Um, the picket line is going <laughs> to going to stay there for some time. Um, and and I think in a matter of weeks, I think it should it should, should probably wrap up. I don't think it's just going to be you know lasting for for many many weeks uh, because it's too much of a high price for American people to pay. Professor Zhang Gong with the University of International Business and Economics. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. The U.S. has launched a cooperation initiative with dozens of European, African, and American countries touching the Atlantic Ocean. The Partnership for Atlantic Cooperation, as this particular initiative is named for, was agreed on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly meetings in New York. The pact does not have a security or military component. U.S. officials say that this partnership will allow the countries involved to better tackle common transnational problems like illegal fishing, natural disasters, and illicit trafficking. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University. Thank you very much for joining us. So, what has prompted the Biden administration or the United States in this matter、uh, to launch this partnership? I mean, some people say it is the U.S. way of responding to China's growing global economic power and global,、uh, say, infrastructure investment. Some people say the U.S. is responding to、uh, the criticism that it, it is facing that the U.S. has been. In a sort of、uh, disproportionate manner, 
focused on supporting Ukraine on war-related matters, compared with supporting, say, countries in the global south、uh, on development issues. What is your take, Professor? Well, this、um, this particular pact, this is a a new strategic pact、uh, with an eye to boosting economic security. So while it's below the you know the the military definition of a pact, it's it's still pretty much a pact. And what the United States is trying to do, and keep in mind here when I talk about the United States, I'm talking about the United Kingdom too, because Britain's、uh, equally behind this pact, is is to try to acquire as many friends as possible. Now look, a couple days ago, the Secretary General of the UN Guterres has、um, predicted that. The、um, the world is breaking into two groups again. He calls it the Great Fracture. So G7 and all of its friends and allies are going one direction, and BRICS and all of its friends and allies are going another direction. And he says that、uh, the future is multilateralism. And、um, I, in many respects, the United Nations it can do it, it does important things, but isn't going to maintain the peace because it can't do that kind of thing. So I, I think、um, the Americans, the British. And I believe the Chinese and the Russian too, Russians too, see that multilateralism is kind of the wave of the future. If you want some kind of security, so this is a race to accumulate as many friends and potential allies as possible. Now I saw the list on the、uh, the Atlantic Declaration. You know, Angola and Togo and and little tiny nations like Norway, which have a chance to play a、mm-hmm. yes a major role、uh, on the world stage. So in this sense. Uh, they're appealing to them, but it's about acquiring friends and allies,、uh, and, and and you know to secure.、Uh, e- it's about economic security, mainly about defense-related matters, nuclear energy, and supply of essential metals for the transition to、um, to the to the new energy. So you know it, it, this thing has、uh, this particular pact has、uh, fairly sinister overtones. It's it's not designed to boost anyone's image. It's designed to accumulate your friends and allies, just in case you're in trouble.、Mm. So the fact that this、uh, partnership does not have a security or military component probably means that perhaps it is not intended as a complement or you know addition to NATO.、Uh, so, Professor. Why do you think、uh, NATO is not viewed as a good platform or a good foundation upon which to build cooperation among a wider community of、uh, Atlantic countries? Well, because、um, NATO has lost its its purpose in 1949. It was designed to keep the Germans in and the Russians out. By the end of the Cold War, NATO had lost its、uh, raison d'être, its reason to be. And, and you know the the commitment to NATO is 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 fairly clear. An attack on one is an attack on all of them. You know this particular、uh, grouping, the Atlantic、uh, group that's just come up, has about twenty five nations in it. Maybe twenty of whom don't belong to NATO. I mean, the United States and London are not going to be、uh, responsible for coming to their aid in the event of attack by their neighbor. I mean,、uh, I NATO has just become too clumsy. In fact, when NATO tried to move out of、uh, Europe and into the Indo-Pacific area and, and establish、uh, an office in Japan, I think President Macron made it very clear that、uh, the European Union and NATO have no business in the Pacific. So、uh, NATO is very unwieldy, and it doesn't mean much anymore. It may look important to some people, but uh, uh, NATO has lost its its purpose. And so right now, the United States is gathering up all these these friends and allies, and they're talking about,、uh, you know, human rights and the United Nations Charter and all that kind of stuff. And、um, you know that, that that's pretty good. Human rights-driven foreign policy sounds very good, but it doesn't go very far. If you're going to deny every nation on earth to right to organize their own people along their own ways, and then you know you're you're already in trouble because you're denying other people their own existence. So、uh, I, I I think this is a very interesting development, but I think what's driving it is not、mm. just the United States alone.、Uh, the the British Prime Minister has promised the、uh, the British people. Uh, uh, a Brexit bonus. It is a free trade agreement with the United States. He's not getting that. 
I mean, all, all he's getting is a commitment to this very, very vague document. I mean, the British are going to feel a little cheated about this thing. Mm-hmm. Also, it gives the uh, the the British prime minister and the American president's president a chance to uh, uh, get to uh, sit together in the Oval Office and, and talk about uh, the old days, about special the special relationship. Well, you know, the special relationship was coined during the Second World War when Adolf Hitler was trying to, <laughs> okay. trying to destroy so, the West. So, Professor, I mean, um, it doesn't mean much anymore. Okay, so, Professor, very, very briefly, this is sort of a yes or no question to you. In reality, do you think this partnership will work? Yes or no? No, sir. Too many, too many different nations, too many national interests involved. Thank you very much for joining us and for providing your valuable insights on this particular issue. That was Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany have announced the plans to examine iPhone 12 over concerns that this、uh, phone model is emitting too much electromagnetic radiation. The move is coming after France ordered Apple to stop sales. French regulator has given the tech giant two weeks to respond to its investigation, and the German authorities say the probe could lead to EU-wide measures. The National Frequencies Agency in France has conducted two radiation tests. iPhone 12 passed one test, but failed in another test. Apple says it had provided proof that it was complying with EU radiation regulations. So, joining us now on the line is Yao Shujie, Chongqing Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So,、um, I mean, Professor, realistically speaking. It's it's been a few years since iPhone 12 was first released to the market across the world. So, do you think it is、um, still meaningful for any regulator, for any government authority, to say that now this model might be a little radioactive? I think this、uh, still a very significant blow to iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the iPhone 12 is already a very old model, but、um, you know in Europe, not not many people change、uh, mobile phone、uh, on a regular basis. So I suspect there must be still a lots of people holding iPhone 12 in their hands. Ah,、uh, that's one thing. But more importantly, is the repercussion effect because the, this radiation test failure. Which suggested that any iPhone could also have similar problem. Maybe a few years later, they will find that iPhone 15 or I- iPhone 14 also have、uh, failed the test. So consumer would quite would be quite concerned. Not only、uh, the the removal of iPhone 12 from the from the shops, but、uh, consumer would be slightly more hesitant to look at the new model iPhone. Ah,、uh, fifteen as they they did in the past. So, I think there is a quite a significant technological and reputational ah、uh, damage to 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 iPhone, and could be the turning point of iPhone ah、uh, reaching his peak ah、uh, in Europe and in the rest of the world. Hmm. So, reputational damage is of course one layer of the question, but、uh, statistically, I mean. There is another layer. I mean, that's probably、uh, the the first and foremost layer of the question. I mean, if we take a look at the case of、uh, the French market, smartphones have been pulled from、uh, stores in this country because of radiation tests before, but this is really the first time that an iPhone model has been affected. So, if Apple had to recall every iPhone 12. Sold in this country, or even、uh, every model sold in the European Union market, Professor Yao, in your estimate, how big of a blow would that deal to the to this tech giant? The, the tech giant,、um, I think, the biggest market is still in Europe because Europe is the most advanced economy and there's a, a large number of、uh, middle class、uh, people 
who are using iPhone as the the major you know you know headphones for the daily communications. Of course, China, um, uh, United States are also uh, the major market of iPhone. But uh, if Europe is going to uh, you know to restrain the sales of iPhone and the use of iPhone, I think there will be a significant uh, in a contagion effect in. Uh, probably not in the United States, but uh, certainly it would be in China. Mm. Because iPhone has been challenged due to the technological blockage uh, against a, 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 a very important uh, iPhone, sorry, mobile phone makers in, in the world, yeah. uh, it's Huawei. And, and Huawei is emerging as a major selling uh, product in China and this would have uh, a you know fairly significant effect in Europe. Maybe the European consumer would start to consider uh, some alternative rather than dominated by iPhone. And this is probably more a nightmare for for iPhone uh, in the global market. Mm. Now, consumers—that's of course one aspect. But from a regulatory standpoint of view, Professor Yao. Uh, do you think it is um, a matter of uh, coincidence, uh, simply a matter of coincidence, that it is in a European country that this particular concern over too much radiation um, from iPhone 12 first appears? Do you see it as part of a bigger, you know, European Union-wide regulatory pressure? against the tech giants, including Apple, Google, Amazon, that we have seen in recent years? Um, it could be both. I mean, one, one cannot guess the underlying reason, but I think the consumer in the world, particularly in Europe, they have been suffocated by the, the over-dominance and profit-taking uh, mechanism. Mm. Uh, dominated by the United States uh, tech giants, particularly iPhone. You know, the market value of iPhone is already, uh, you know, at some point, surpassing three trillion US dollars in the market, which is basically bigger than most of the European countries, uh, apart probably apart from uh, you know Germany. I think it's certainly uh, bigger than the UK. Uh, the, the, you know, the second largest in, in Europe. Uh, this, this is pretty unusual, uh, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And why iPhone can mm-hmm. huge market success? It's not because of the free competition. It's because of the political mechanism uh, triggered by the, Don, the Donald Trump administration as well as the Biden administration. Because uh, the the United States, uh, in a shared interest, have given a lot of advantage for the design in the United States and the Europe and Japan, China, uh, the major economy block, uh, apart from the United States, have been you know have been suffering uh, due to the you know the, the unilateral policy imposed by the United States to have the technological mm. domination. And iPhone have benefited from this uh, as a regard. So uh, in the future, I think there will there will be some uh, fight back, not only by Europe but maybe by mm. other countries. Yeah, thank you very much for putting this into perspective. That was Professor Yao Shujie was Chongqing University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Hun in Beijing. Bye for now.